you're using one of the chair Bibles in front of you, it's going to be on page 515. Uh, I I missed uh, two brief announcements earlier. Number one, uh, as you know, we've been doing, uh, having the elders available for prayer after the service, and we're going to move that into Rachel's office over there. So that's where that's going to be from now on. We think that's a better place, unless you can think of a better place, but we're going to go with that for now. So um, the other one is that uh, I wanted to give an update on MOPS. So far, we have 20 MOMs already signed up for the fall with 30 kids in between them. But one thing is interesting. We only have one baby under one out of all those kids, and that's, that's future baby Schultz in November. Um, but so I'm doing, well, thanks. <laughs> so I'm doing my part. Now it's time for you guys to do your part. Um, if you know people who will have a baby under one in September, we have lots of room for them. And that means we can take more moms, which would be awesome. So just wanted to make you aware of that need. Or that opportunity. I guess, I don't know. <laughs> it's a little bit of both, okay? Praise God for it, though. All right. As we've been working through Psalm 119, we've been hearing a lot about God's word. It's, as, as we've said before, it's a psalm that is written all about God's word. All 176 verses are about how good God's word is and how necessary it is for our lives. And because we believe that, because we as a church believe that God's word is necessary for the believer, we make an assumption about God's word. And then the assumption that I make every week and the the assumption that you make every week is that when God's word is preached, we should respond to it. And it's such an assumption in churches that believe in the Bible that it's something every once in a while we need to address and we need to talk explicitly about. The assumption that there is an application to what God has said. There's an assumption that we should do what God's word says, and what God's word says moves us to action. Because I think, if we're honest, one of the hardest parts of the Christian life is not knowing what to do, but actually doing it. That the distance between knowing what I should do and having the fortitude and character to do it is often some of the greatest distance in the Christian life. And none of us are without exception in this. That it's easy to see what the Bible says sometimes, but it's really hard to do it sometimes. And this stanza, in particular focuses on activity, focuses on doing God's word. And it it focuses on how we do God's word, but also how God does his word. I think of a place like James chapter 1, verse 22, that says, but be doers of the word 
and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. And so this stanza helps us move from being merely hearing the word to hearing the word and then acting and doing and the active life of faith that we are called to. That God's word should and must change how you live. Because if you're really listening to God's word, you will change. You will want to change. You will want to act. You will want to do God's word. So today, as we look through this stanza, we're going to see that in, and we're going to see what we are called to do, our activity. But then we're also going to see how the activity of God enables and empowers our activity. So you're going to see a little pattern. Again, this is not just my effort to be cutesy with the outline, because I am not that creative. But if you look at your outline, you're going to see the main point, and then you're going to see our activity and God's activity. And that's the basic pattern of this psalm stanza. And again, we're going to see our big idea. Again, if you're, if you're following along in your outline there, the big idea is that we are called to live righteous lives empowered by the activity of God in our lives. Because God is an active God. He comes into history and acts according to his character and according to the promises he has made. And that activity changes our activity. So let's first look at that we are called to live a life of righteousness and justice. Look at verses 121 and 122. I have done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Give your servant a pledge of good. Let not the insolent oppress me. So again, looking at our activity, what action are we called to here? It's summarized in this way, to live lives of justice and righteousness. So what does that mean? What does it mean to live a life of justice and righteousness? Well, when I think of righteousness, I think of right living, I think of holiness, that there is a certain godly quality to our lives. That, in, in, to use simpler words, we're, we're doing the right thing. That God calls us to act in a certain way, and we follow that. that is, that's a simple way to think of righteousness. It's like what you see at the end of the fruit of the Spirit list in Galatians chapter 5. Lists all these godly characters that are an evidence of a godly life, an evidence of the Spirit moving in the believer. And Paul says, against such things there is no law. It's always right to do the right thing. Is pretty much what Paul is saying. And that's the life of righteousness. Doing the right thing as God tells us to. A little different is this idea of justice. And as I would define justice here, it's holy action related to others. And I think there's a big assumption that we often gloss over that God cares how you treat other people. Sometimes we can abuse this idea of our actions and our life being between us and God. And yeah, we are directly responsible to God for everything that we do. But we don't live in a vacuum. 
Our actions affect other people. Our actions should affect other people in a godly way. And to do justice is to do the right thing towards someone else. The the Christian life is not just my own isolated life. The Christian life is a connected life. And so we do justice to one another. We treat one another fairly. We do justice out in the community, caring for others. Again, God cares how we treat our community. God cares how we treat the creation that he has given us. A life of justice is doing the right thing towards others. And that's what we're called to. And in some ways, we're acting like God in this because God is perfectly righteous and perfectly just. And God is pleased when we mimic him in our behavior. And one way that we mimic God, because we can only try to copy him (laughs) in a very flawed, very limited way, but one way that we do that is a life of righteousness, a life above reproach, and a life of justice. Acting with righteousness towards one another. But how's this possible? What activity of God enables us to do this? Because, let's pick on justice for a second. To do the right thing for someone else can put you in a situation where you are manipulated by them or you put yourself at a disadvantage to them because justice to another person requires humility and humility can be taken advantage of. So what does God do to protect us so that we can be humble, so that we can do justice and righteousness? Because both require humility. We'll look at the end of verse 121 and verse 122. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Give your servant a pledge of good. Let not the insolent oppress me. The activity we need to to act in a way that is righteous and just is we need God to protect us from from our enemies. And how are enemies defined here? Those who arrogantly reject God and his word. They are the oppressors, the insolent, the arrogant. Those who think they know better than God and they reject him and his word. We need protection from them. We need protection from them because, as described here as oppressors, they may try to keep us from following what God has said. And there's a reality there that when we act in a righteous and just way, people may not like it. Another reason we need God's protection. Think about Acts chapter 4 where the authorities demand that the believers not talk about Jesus. It's a great example. The authorities say, stop it. Stop talking about Jesus. 
But the believers know that they are protected by God. And so that they can continue to do the right thing. Because God will protect us from our enemies. From those who might even go so far as to try to keep us from following his word. Now, thankfully, we live in a country where this is not always as explicit as it is in other countries, especially Muslim countries. But there is pressure. There is pressure that will be applied against you, no matter where you live, to not do what God has called you to do. That will always be true until Christ returns. And so we must rely on the protection of God. That he will keep his promise, that he will protect us from our oppressors. And what a way to pray, too, for our missionaries. Think of some of our missionaries who have gotten kicked out of the countries in which they were serving. I have a friend who was kicked out of one of the Stan countries. What a great way and a reminder to pray for our missionaries that God would protect them from governments who would want to kick them out. What a way to just say, God, help the missionary. (laughs) We need more. We need more than that. We need to say, God, protect them from their oppressors. Whether that's the government, whether that's people in the community, God, protect them so they can continue to do your work in your world. Again, allow God's word to shape your prayer life, to make it more robust, to make it more full. But then we also pray for ourselves, God, protect us from being afraid of those who would oppose us. Protect us so that we can humbly serve one another and serve those in the community, that we can boldly proclaim the name of Jesus without fear of anyone because you will protect us. Secondly, I want us to see that we're called to live a life of hope. Think of verses 123 and 124. My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love and teach me your statutes. So in this, our activity is hoping in God's loving promises. That there is an active life of hope that we are called to. And again, this this word, my eyes long for your salvation, we've seen that word earlier in the psalm, this idea of desperate need, this idea of desperate pleading and desperate longing to God. That I long for your comfort. That I long for your salvation. Living on this side of the cross, we long for Christ to return and make all things right. And there's a life of hope. But what we need to see is that this hope is based not on our own activity. It's not if I act just and right enough that then I can have hope because I, you know, got enough karma points or whatever you want to, whatever point system you're working on. 
But our hope is actual hope because it's based on the activity of God. Look at God's activity in verse 124. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love. This is that word for action that pops up again and again in this stanza. Do steadfast love to your servants. And and throughout your Bible, this idea of steadfast love, this idea of a love based not on our works, but on a covenantal relationship with the God of the universe. That it's not based on our activity, but it is based on the very love that God has for us. And since it's not based on our activity, that hope cannot go away. Because God does not go away. If our hope is based on God, and God never changes and never goes away, and nothing is greater than him, then our hope never goes away, and our hope is greater than everything. Because God is the greatest, he gives the greatest hope, which is an only hope. No other religion can guarantee hope the way that the Bible does. And most of them don't even try. (laughs) Because they can't. Every other religious system is getting enough points that the good points outweigh the bad points, and maybe you might get in, kind of, sort of, maybe. But God says, I have given you hope and it is based on my very character and that hope cannot be taken away. So I can live a confident life of hope because my hope comes from God, the eternal, unchanging God. But then, Interestingly, at the end of 24, end of 124, in in talking about hope, the, the psalmist says, teach me your statutes. And when you first read that, you're sort of like, wait, why, why would we have this, this request to learn God's word after this idea of hope? And I think the first reason for this is that there's a plea for God to teach his word because it's in his word that we find the promises of hope. Like if you don't know hope's there, you don't know you got it. And so we say, God, teach me your word so I can see all of these promises and all of these assurances of my future hope. And so my belief in your hope is strengthened through better understanding your word. Again, as we continue to to invest in God's word, what we get back is a better understanding of God's character and his sovereign love for us and his grace towards us, which guarantees hope. So one of the ways to grow in hope is to grow in your knowledge of his word because this word preaches hope. So if you don't feel like you have hope, maybe you've come disconnected from the word. 
And this is a call to come back to say, God, teach me about your hope through your word. Teach me that you are coming back and you will make all things right. And you guarantee it. Because it's based on the blood of Jesus Christ, not on how good of a person I am. And so as we, as we're tempted to lose hope, to keep coming back to the spring of hope that is God's word. And we say, God, teach me hope in your word. Show me that you are in control and that no one can snatch me out of your hands. Thirdly, I want to see that we're called to live a life of learned obedience. We're to live a life of learned obedience. Look at verses 125 to 128. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. It is time for the Lord to act, for your law has been broken. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. Now, in this part of the stanza, the pattern switches. And we're going to first see God's activity, and then our activity. So in verses 125 and 126, we see God's activity is that God teaches his people in the present and promises justice in the future. Look first at verse 125. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. God has given us his word so that we can obey it. And as we've seen throughout this psalm, that that obedience is the way to really find freedom. Because that's a backward notion in our head. We think the way to find freedom is to do things our way. To do what's right in our own eyes. And if you've been in ABF at all this year, you know what happens, that there is no freedom when we do what's right in our own eyes. Think about the book of Judges. Okay, make that connection. All right, keep moving. All right. But God teaches us for the now. God teaches us so we know how to be obedient because in obedience we find freedom and real life. Again, don't settle for less of a life because the life of obedience to God is so much greater. But not only has he taught us through his word for today, he also promises to bring justice to those who have rejected his word. Verse 126. It is time for the Lord to act. For your law has been broken. This is a call for the justice of God on sin. God, it is time to show your justice. And when you realize that, when you realize the prayer of the book of Revelation of come Lord Jesus, it's praying for justice. It's 
praying for justice against wickedness and sin and everything that rebels against God. It is time for the Lord to act, for your law has been broken. So we pray for understanding of God's word, but then we pray for justice against those who reject God and his word. And what is our activity? Our activity is a loving obedience. Look at verses 127 and 128. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. So again, we see that God teaches us his word, how to be obedient, and we are called to love obedience, to lovingly offer obedience back to God. That God's word shows us how to demonstrate our love for him. That when God's word gives us commands, these are ways that we demonstrate our love to God. In one way. But again, that's a different way to view commands than maybe we're used to. This is not God trying to kill your fun. This is not God trying to keep you under his eternal thumb if he has a thumb. But God has given us these commands for us to then turn back to him and say, I love you so much, I am going to follow you and do what you say is right. Again, it, it, can, it can, if you let it, it can change the whole way you think about obedience. Obedience. That obedience is a demonstration of love to God. It's not, if you don't do these things, God's going to strike you with lightning. That's not the motivation to obey. But it's the motivation to obey is to demonstrate in a tangible way our love to God. And when we understand that, that's when we can say that God's word is better than gobs and gobs of money. If this is a guide to demonstrate our love to the God who created us and saved us, if this is a way that we can show our love and gratitude and worship back to him, then yes, it is worth more than gobs and gobs of money. Because money can't show you how to love the God who sent his son to die for your sins. We can also be obedient because we actually know what he wants. Throughout your Old Testament, there's a common idea that God's word is loved because no one else has God's word like God's people do. One of my favorite examples of this from the ancient Near East is, is the practice of if you had a decision to make, you'd go kill a sheep 
I don't know why I talk about killing sheep so much in sermons, but you get the point. Um, And you take out their liver, and you look at their liver. And if there's like a bump here and a big vein over here, then you look in this book that has pictures of sheep's livers, and you find a sheep's liver that matches the one you have in your hand. And you look what they did, and if it worked out, and if it did, you do the same thing. How much better is the very words of God to us? Where God directly speaks in actual words. That God says, this is who I am. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am full of steadfast love and slow to anger. I mean, if I asked you to find something out about God, would you rather use a Bible or a sheep's liver? And, and how hard is it when, when you want to do something for someone, but you don't know what they want and you don't know what their expectations of you are? God has shown us his expectations. God shows us exactly what he wants for us. And that's a blessing. It's not a weight. It's a blessing. And so again, we can say that God is worth more than the most expensive thing. It's a glorious gift, even in all its commands. The other enabling work of God here is in the vindication that God promises to bring. Again, go to verse 126. It is time for the Lord to act, for your law has been broken. I can do the right thing now, even though no one else thinks it's the right thing. If God thinks it's the right thing, and I do it, and no one else thinks it's the right thing, I can do it because in the end, I will be vindicated. Because in history, God gets the last word. And when Christ returns, one of the reasons that he's returning is to vindicate himself and to vindicate his people. That when Christ returns, when Christ brings total justice, those who follow God will be shown to be right. And so it doesn't matter... If my neighbors think I'm doing the right thing, it doesn't matter if even my family thinks I'm doing the right thing. If I'm doing the right thing, what matters is if God thinks it's the right thing. Because ultimately, that's what really matters. Because Jesus is coming back. And he is coming back in justice. And those of us who are following him will find our vindication. Lastly, I want to say this. In God's activity in giving us his word, it is so good that we hate anything that goes against it. Look at verse 128. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. 
that God's word is so good and God's word reveals the God who is so good that I will hate anything that rebels against God. That the prayer for my life is that I would be so enthralled by the glory of God that I would hate any disobedience against him. I don't want to do it. I hate rebellion against God. That I love God so much that I don't want to do anything that goes against him. That it causes me to hate sin in my life. And hating sin leads to repentance. And repentance is a very godly thing. And because of the greatness of God, followed with an understanding of how wicked my sin is, I can hate that sin. Because it doesn't even come close to the overwhelming glory and holiness of God. And so I will want to repent. I will want to change my life because God is so good and so holy I hate anything that detracts from that holiness and again we see the activity of God working itself out and empowering us to do what is right to do what is just to do what would please God and in hating evil I love what is just and right. Friends, God is calling us to live lives of righteousness and justice. He is offering us a life of real hope. And he calls us to a life of learned obedience to him. And all of this is possible because God is a doer of his own word. God keeps his promises and praise God for that. He treats us with an eternal loving kindness. He protects us from our oppressors. He teaches us through his word and he promises to bring about perfect justice on all unrighteousness. And because that's the God we serve, because we serve an active God who always does what is just and right, we can live lives of righteousness and justice to his glory. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. God, that we would love your commandments more than any gold, more than any money, more than anything. God, that we would find hope in your word, that we would find protection from anyone who would try to keep us from following your word, and that in your word we would find hope and life and forgiveness. God, help us to not just be hearers of your word, but help us to also be doers of your word, and that we would offer that activity to you as worship and as an act of love to the God who created and saved us. God, empower us 
by your Holy Spirit to live lives of obedience. And God, use your word to teach all of us what it means to do righteousness and justice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.